Hello, and welcome to this subscriber-only episode of Suite 212. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're going to be making one of our rare excursions into popular culture to discuss the recent Channel 4 miniseries, It's a Sin, which looked back at the HIV and AIDS crisis in the UK in the 1980s and early 1990s, and which was broadcast on Channel 4 in January and February, and released onto All 4 in January. Joining me today is writer Hugh Lemmy, who's featured on Suite 212 several times to discuss queer consciousness raising from the 1960s to the present, and his 2019 novel Red Tory, My Corbyn Chemsex Hell, amongst other things. He's also the author of Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Ass, published by Montez Press in 2015, An Unknown Language, which came out on Ignota Books last year, and is engaged with the work of the 12th century mystic, scientist, composer, herbalist, and inventor Hildegard of Bingen. He is also the co-host of the Consistently Compelling Bad Gays podcast, writer of the excellent Utopian Drivel on Substack, and one of the least insufferable people on Twitter. So Hugh, welcome back to Suite 212. The last bit is the hardest to live up to, I think. <laughs> I don't know. There's some pretty dreadful people on there, man. Um, <laughs> anyway, yes, all, all of our listeners will have found us on Twitter. So, yeah, welcome to the show. So just to introduce It's a Sin for anyone who hasn't heard about what it is and what it's about. It was written by Russell T. Davis, who made his name with Queer as Folk in 1999, broadcast on Channel 4, and went on to become a regular scriptwriter for Doctor Who. It's a Sin is a series of five 45-minute episodes set in London, beginning in September 1981 and ending in November 1991. It follows a group of friends who meet on the gay scene and share a flat, taking in their sex lives and relationships, families and careers, as the HIV and AIDS pandemic goes from rumblings in the underground gay press to something they try and ignore or deny, uh, and ultimately has a massive impact on all of them. With each episode set two or three years apart, we follow Roscoe, played by Amari Douglas, who runs away from home when his father plans to take him back to Nigeria. Richie, played by Ollie Alexander of the band Years and Years, who switches from law to acting, much to his parents' irritation, and strikes up a friendship with a woman called Jill, who is played by Lydia West, is a very important character in the series. Uh, we also follow Colin, played by Callum Scott Howells, who begins an apprenticeship with a Savile Row tailor and strikes up a friendship with an older gay couple in Hackney in the opening episode. And Ash, a British Asian who is Richie's main romantic interest and who works in a school. We'll be discussing their past throughout the show, which will mean spoilers for those who haven't seen the series yet. So if you don't want to know what happens and it's a sin, I suggest watching the series and then and then coming back to us. Um, just a little aside here. I think my favourite ever spoiler was when I went to see Oh Hazard Balthazar at Close Up in London. Ian Sinclair was introducing the film and indeed issued a pretty big spoiler in that introduction. And there was all round groans around me in the cinema. And I just thought... Look, it's a Robert Bresson film. Like, the donkey's not going to become president. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, hopefully we won't. Well, I think we are going to have to issue similarly-sized spoilers today, I'm afraid. But, yeah, if that's a problem for you, come back a bit later. So, Hugh, I want to bring you in at this point and just ask you first, you know, you've, you've now watched the series, as have I. So what were your initial impressions of it? I really enjoyed the first three episodes. I was really sort of um, compelled by his sort of storytelling um, and I thought it was like interesting that like as a project to produce this quite popular engaging sort of form of um, storytelling around around the early stages of the AIDS crisis um, and then episode four seemed to me to take a sharp downwards turn um, and I found, it, I found it confusing didn't really enjoy enjoy it and then the last episode uh, kind of made me a bit angry, I think. It felt like a curtailed series, which we'll, I think, go on to talk about, because I actually said while watching it to um, to my boyfriend who I was watching it with, like, this feels like it's been cut short, that that, that this should have gone on a bit longer. And I subsequently found out that, that that's ex exactly what happened. So, um, but but as a as a project, I think, you know, it's, um, as with a lot of things that Rusty Davis does, He's it's not it's not cutting edge. He doesn't set out necessarily the intention of that. He he's a popularizer of of sort of stories, I think. And I think it's it's generous to look at what writers intend to do and judge them according to that. Um so it's not 1991. 
you know, the, he's not Derek Jarman. He's doing what he's doing. And the, at first, I think he does it very well. But I think towards the end of the series, somehow it goes catastrophically wrong for me personally. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe I had a slightly more favourable reaction to the show than you. I mean, it's interesting to think about the different contexts in which we both watched it. I mean, uh, obviously, we we're both watching it during the COVID-19 lockdown. You know, you mentioned watching it with your boyfriend. Uh, I watched this on my own. And the first couple of episodes in particular feature an awful lot of sex. It's, the show is very frank sexually. And, you know, as well as just making me miss intimacy you know it also raised for me a lot of thoughts about growing up under section 28 which of course will direct consequence of the HIV and AIDS crisis the piece of legislation that Thatcher passed in 1988 to outlaw the promotion of homosexuality in schools and public bodies which comes up in the show in episode four so we'll come on to that later but it got me thinking a lot about my own kind of schooling and Issues around kind of shame and self-loathing, I think, as a young queer person in mm. Britain in the 90s and early noughties. Uh, I mean, like you sort of grew up around the time that the AIDS pandemic became more manageable with this sort of retroviral treatment. Um, and so, you know, the age in which AIDS was, as one of the characters in its singles, it was a death sentence, was just passing as I was growing up. But, but I was spending a lot of yeah. time usually on Channel 4 and sometimes BBC Two in the 90s, sat up late watching programmes about LGBT culture and, and history. And, you know, as is completely understandable, the AIDS epidemic cast an incredibly long shadow and indeed came up quite a lot. Um, and it was obvious it had a big effect on queer politics, culture, society in that time. I mean, nonetheless, like Russell T Davis, like made his name in 1999 with Queer as Folk, which covers the Canal Street district of Manchester, a very famous gay scene there. And that show didn't mention HIV or AIDS at all, you know, even though it appeared at this point where the, the pandemic was becoming more manageable. And it had quite a big effect on the gay community in Manchester. It brought a much bigger number of people to Canal Street. And that was the point where I went to university and found that to be the case, that the, the gay quarter in Manchester was commercialising a lot, in part due to, as you say, Russell T Davis's popularising of that scene some years after it had been at its most radical or important or cutting edge, perhaps. I mean, something that's interesting here is that despite that success of Queer as Folk, Channel 4 initially declined It's a Sin, Davis tried to get the BBC and ITV to produce it. ITV said they weren't ready. The BBC also declined it. Channel 4 only took it on after the commissioning editor of drama there, a man called Lee Mason, fought very hard for it. And even then, the series was truncated from its originally planned eight episodes down to five, which, you know, I think is pretty incredible given Russell T. Davis's track record as a writer of critically and commercially successful television programmes, right? Yeah, I found it astonishing that that he'd. Well, I didn't find it astonishing. I found it all too believable, but I found it depressing that even a writer of Russell T Davies Davies standards, as this producer producer of very popular TV, who with such a track record, still really had to fight over a, a seemingly a period of years to get it produced, and yeah, had to make these concessions around both, you know, around around its length and um, and yeah, in order to get. It, to get it produced, I think that's like a much like deeper problem within the sort of cultural management, the middle management of culture in the UK around what can and can't be produced and their expectations of what audiences do and don't want. And I hope that they've learned, um, I don't, don't believe they will have learned a lesson, but I hope they've learned a lesson by the fact that I, I believe it was the most streamed television programme ever in the UK, uh, most binge watched television programme ever in the UK. For, for for its flaws and its problems, it's a it's it's a a show that takes its audience seriously, regards them as intelligent people who want intelligent drama, um, dealing with difficult issues, and um, he was rewarded for that uh, in in people watching it. So, I think people the, the 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 sort of executives in television really should yeah pay heed to that. 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And it's a drum I've been banging on Sweet 212 ever since I started doing the show, really, that, you know, this concept of cultural democracy and that if you treat human beings as intelligent and interested and socially engaged people, they'll respond as such. And yeah, and, I mean, and, to, and, and to give artists and writers uh, a degree of autonomy and uh, direction in terms of um, not putting everything through a whole series of um, filters and focus groups as to what, what is watchable, giving one person or a, a small group of people the, the power to say, how do we tell this story interestingly produces more interesting stories. Yeah, and I completely agree. And, you know, this idea that, you know, in the arts in particular, people often don't know what they want until they're given it. Um, and, you know, there are so many examples of musical or cinematic or literary works that prove very successful that if you took to a kind of producer who was thinking with an eye on the market, they would just immediately turf out and indeed often have done. Um, yeah, I mean, the the show, as you say, um, was incredibly successful on its uploading to Channel 4's online platform, All 4, where all five episodes became available at the same time. Um, it's been watched in its entirety so far more than six and a half million times. It also reportedly led to an upsurge in HIV and AIDS testing. The Terence Higgins Trust reported that more than 8,000 tests were ordered in a single day soon after the first broadcast, uh, the previous record being 2,800. Uh, there was also a t-shirt just with the word la, which is based on the greeting that the characters use for each other in the show that apparently raised uh, over £100,000 for Terence Higgins Trust. Um, so there was a very positive reaction there. I'd like to talk about a couple of negative reactions first. The first is a very specific one, which is a headline in The Sun from the 22nd of January 2021, which just said, so much sex, and then the subheading, it's a sin viewers shot by drama's explicit sex montage with raunchy threesome and oral sex. I mean, The Sun apologised via the LGBT website Pink News, but this was a curiously reminiscent of the Sun's headlines about gay people in the 80s. It's not a million miles away from the way a lot of newspapers talk about trans people now. But, you know, Hugh, I wondered if you'd like to maybe just expand a bit on how that Sun headline fits in with some of the sort of 1980s history of the media's coverage of the AIDS epidemic and of gay men more generally. Um, fuck the Sun. Uh, yeah, never uh, buy the sun. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to expand. I'm going to contract it down to that. <laughs> never buy the sun. Yeah, um, it's entirely of a piece. I mean, it, it's almost like the uh, the sun sort of produced it to fit in with the same sort of retro, you know, like like it could have been branding for the show. You know, this is what it was like. I mean, obviously, it was actually a lot worse in, in the 80s. Um, a, a lot of the headlines around the time really played on the objectification of gay men in particular, people, people living with AIDS, but especially gay men and drug users, intravenous drug users. And it was purely, you know, in, entirely um, venal, disgusting objectification for the point of setting newspapers, creating an enemy. And yeah, again, the focus again on this, this idea of disgust that they were trying to, trying to bring up in order to further humiliate people who are already in a difficult situation was uh, truly appalling. But it wasn't just limited to the sun. It was much more widespread um, across stuff like this was appearing also in broadsheets, some stuff in broadsheets up until the sort of early 2000s and in magazines. I've just written a piece actually about homophobia in um, Private Eye, which would regard itself, I suppose, as a sort of reasonably respectable. I mean, what, what I mean to say is that in in Private Eye, it was gay people who were being made fun of and people with AIDS who were being made fun of in the 80s and not the sun for running these headlines. You know, it was of a piece for general sort of conversation, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, actually, so just to go back to what you, you were saying before about the Queer as Folk and when that came out, and I think that's like a really interesting time because it's around the time of this quite big change in social attitudes towards queer people in the UK especially towards gay men which comes about I think maybe partially because of the introduction of um, highly active retrovirals um, antiretrovirals and this change that happened in the 2000s and now now I, I, I kind of feel like in terms of gay generations I don't want to be an old man about this but the, the, the people born after 2000 uh, in the same way that I don't really know what it was like in the 80s, being born in 86, people after the 2000s don't really know quite how quickly things have changed in our lifetime and in their lifetime. When 
Queer as Folk came out was just around the time I was coming out as a sort of 13, 14 year old. And uh, Section 28 was still uh, still on the books until 2003. It really, really affected me when I came out at school. But the sex education I got at school was we were made to watch Philadelphia, which is a extremely troubling thing to show children, you know, young gay children anyway. Um, and a, a totally different representation of AIDS. And, and so Russell T. Davis was producing that at a time when represent, mainstream representations of gay men were still totally, totally conditioned by um, people living with AIDS and gay men with AIDS. And, and when I came out, most of the homophobic bullying that I was receiving was definitely focused around AIDS rather than, you know, gender presentation or other, other aspects of homophobia. Mm, um, yeah. Of which, so, so this was a general culture of which the son is obviously like hugely culpable and to blame and, and none of these people have ever been held accountable in any meaningful way or apologized um, but it wasn't just the son it was it was a really widespread part of uh, British culture until really quite recently yeah absolutely and as I sort of intimated they're doing the same thing now to just a slightly different target and the same know, tools exactly yeah exactly and you and many others have pointed out the similarity between the assault against gay men in the 80s and the assault on trans people and particularly trans women I think in the 2010s and coming into the 2020s um yeah I mean something else I'd like to maybe ask you about before we move on to the specifics of the series the show has elicited some quite intense reactions from people and that's partly due to the sort of emotional power of it that we've already discussed um but I wonder what you've made of, of some of the sort of criticism that we've made of the show maybe either in reviews or or, or just online where it's been discussed quite extensively yeah, I mean, it, it was clear that it had, for a, for a lot of people who lived through the AIDS crisis, who had friends or, or lovers um, who died of AIDS or who were themselves HIV positive or, or HIV positive, like clearly it was extremely affecting. And reading responses to Twitter, that was that seemed to be an initial response. A lot of people who had firsthand experience were very moved by it, um, which is a testament to his writing, but also to, I think, the lack of mainstream stories or productions that tell these stories there's so many stories it was such a huge part of people's life obviously it was such a devastating period for people and it was very hard for people to talk about it because the shame and stigma attached for so long that yeah there's a degree of intensity to it that means that people are extremely invested in the stories that are being told and I think a lot of the criticism also comes from that and that's not a criticism but a criticism like it's right maybe to be invested in stories in this way that you know mean so much to you but it's the rare nature of such a show that actually makes people so invested in it. And I think there's also a strange thing of the degree to which people sometimes invest themselves um, in, it's a way we consume culture these days as a sort of fandom where there can be a pressure or a tone to the criticism, which is like, why didn't they write the thing that I wanted them to write? Which definitely comes through when, when there aren't enough of these stories being told. And... A lot of the criticism I thought was like extremely thoughtful about the way uh, Russell T. Davies has told the story and the problems in the way he's told the story. Um, and I share perhaps some of those criticisms as well, which I think we can talk about later in terms of the way he perhaps perpetuated some of the ways in which people talked about the stories of how people talked about AIDS at the time. But also I think it's important to note, which is like also I personally feel is like a real problem in a lot of contemporary criticism anyway which is that representation is not an endorsement of something which I think is really clear important to make clear and that a lot of the behaviors of people in the show which, which were problematic or unpleasant they, they were behaviors that people had and therefore representing them can be important without and it doesn't necessarily endorse those positions um, but having said that choosing to give such weight perhaps to certain certain aspects of the way that people responded to their own um, diagnoses, uh, the way people thought through their own involvement in the, in the epidemic does mean something like to, to, to give weight to one story, not to another story does mean something. Um, and so, yeah, we should talk about that as well. Yeah. And we're going to come on to the specifics of the show now, I think. I mean, I completely agree with what you say about representation and endorsement and it's constant frustration to me as well of the inability sometimes of critics in whatever capacity 
to differentiate between those two things. And, you know, I also agree with what you say about the sort of pressure on queer narratives because there's a relative lack of them in mainstream mm-hmm. contexts. I mean, again, coming from a trans perspective, I really feel this very strongly, you know, like if there's a trans narrative in the mainstream, of course, trans people are going to have the most intense reactions to yeah. it because it's more important to us than anybody else. So that's an interesting thing to consider when thinking about how people have responded to this show and particularly people from queer communities. So let's come on to that now. Um, You know, Davis has said he first publicly announced that he was working on this in 2015, I think, and subsequently has said that he based the series, you know, on his own experiences, on his friends' experiences, um, and, you know, did regret to some extent not really delving into any of this in Queer as Folk. You know, most of the cast were openly gay, and I think you can feel that the actors are drawing on their own experiences to some extent as well, and perhaps to some sort of cross-generational, like, gay and queer heritage that they've, they've been personally a part of. You know, I want to start by kind of praising certain aspects of the show. You know, writing for television is really, really difficult. Um, the sort of supposed demands of the viewers, which I think maybe is actually a sort of prejudice on the part of executives, makes things very hard. You know, there's this sort of perception that viewers will not just watch something that is visually quite static. They won't just watch, you know, two people talking in a room or whatever in a way that a lot of television used to do in the sort of 60s and 70s. So you have to have incredibly quick cutting between locations and quite a lot of visual variety. And you have to have a real kind of economy of writing, which I think Russell T. Davis really does. You know, he's very, very good at, you know, giving a single line of dialogue or a single cultural reference that gives you an awful lot of insight into a character's sort of background or worldview or behaviour. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you remember the first ever episode, I think. I think it's the first episode. I think, in fact, the first scene of Queer as Folk is um, Aidan going into the bathroom because he, he thinks he's seen someone at work who he's, he's into, he wants to cruise, and he, he puts on an AIDS ribbon, which I think is one of the few references to AIDS mm-hmm. at the time. He puts on a red AIDS ribbon as, like, a signal. to, And it's a, it's a two-minute scene or something, which works, which, yeah, is an exact example of this. It's extremely, like, clever, thoughtful nuanced thing that gives you so much insight into this, this character's personality. Yeah, and I mean, when, when I saw Queer as Folk in the mid-2000s, I finally got around to watching it, and I actually tried to write a sort of trans equivalent of, of Queer as Folk, mm. and it's extraordinarily difficult. So, you know, I, I came out of Queer as Folk and this uh, really full of admiration for the kind of incredible economy with which Russell T. Davis brings a kind of world of of ideas or politics into brief lines of dialogue. I mean, for example, there's a scene in the second episode, I think, where Jill is caring for uh, their friend who's known as Gloria, I think it's Gregory, but they call him Gloria, who has caught the virus. And Gloria's parents come to visit and they know Gloria is ill, but they don't know what's up. And they just see Jill wearing a pair of like pink washing up gloves. Mm -hmm. And the father just starts screaming, why is she wearing washing up gloves? Um, And in that moment, you know, you get this world of kind of like paranoia of confusion and confusion about how AIDS was transmitted, which at the time the episode set, I think that's the 1983 or maybe 1984 episode, you know, people really didn't know how it was transmitted and were very, very scared. So I think there's an incredible economy with which with which Davis writes that I think is is genuinely deserving of of huge praise. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. Um, that yeah, and that he's he he knows how to produce a very well crafted, a very well crafted TV drama, which is why more responsibility perhaps is like <laughs> laid upon the way he tells the stories. It also made me think of uh, the film he made a couple of years ago I think it was a three-parter um, a very English scandal about the Jeremy Thorpe trial which I, I thought was again done extremely well and very neatly crafted yeah and listeners who want to know more about Jeremy Jeremy Thorpe should refer to your episode of Bad Gays I guess because you covered the story very comprehensively there so we'll uh we'll, we'll, we won't spend any more time with, with that but um you know, I think it's fair to say that It's a Sin spends more time and pays more attention to the sort of personal impact of the crisis 
and particularly on these characters than the sort of wider political impact. And I mean, I don't say that necessarily as a criticism because, you know, often good storytelling is focusing on a narrow set of people to tell a much wider story and to, you know, maybe bring bring the politics into the subtext or find a way of bringing out the politics that isn't maybe quite so kind of direct or overt because if you want to just deal with the politics, you'd make a documentary, right? But nonetheless, I think we should we should lead on to um, some of the politics of the show, you know, not least because that's what we do at Sweet 212. But, you know, maybe we, we could start that by talking about how the show portrays the LGBT community. Um, I mean, maybe it's partly reflective of um, fractures in the community at the time, um, fractures that I think are sort of explored quite well in the 2014 film Pride, of course, about the lesbians and gay support the minors movement, where you do see some fractures between the lesbian and gay communities. Um, but, you know, in It's a Sin, you see very, very little of the lesbian circuit and how the Lesbian and Gay Alliance, or even just the lesbian community, was affected by the HIV and AIDS outbreak. You don't really see an awful lot of the impact of it on women at all. I think there's one trans woman who you see, but if you do hear her, you don't hear her very much. Uh, she doesn't get any significant dialogue. So this is very much a film about gay men with, you know, mm. one kind of straight female friend. Yeah, exactly. Watching it, I did think about um, that episode of Sweet What 2 on 2 you did recently with um, Sarah Shulman and James Butler and something really um, insightful that Sarah Shulman said regarding the way the AIDS crisis is has been depicted historically, which is that very, very frequently in films such as Philadelphia, for example, um, the focus is on providing opportunity for a heterosexual person to overcome their homophobia in order to provide help, which this show doesn't do really. But, but I would say that one of my criticisms of it is there is very little focus on uh, mutual aid within the queer community, which seems very strange to me that that's that a choice that he, he would have made, particularly because there is an opportunity because so little is told to us about the life of Jill. She doesn't really seem necessary to have her own sort of personal internal life beyond providing care and help for these men and the men themselves don't actually provide much help for each other and there are there's no depictions of lesbians as far as I'm aware I, I can't remember an entire thing at all which is not what happened and I think that does there, therefore become like a political issue even though it is focused on the personal like the show to me is a is a is a show about care and to make that choice about how you represent care is 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 unusual I, I did read that the working title for the for the program was boys which is a much better title for it. It covers so much more because I think as we'll maybe discuss later, like there's a lot of the politics of care that come up in the, in the show is to do with gender anyway and uh, the roles that women play. And for me, as much as this is about, uh, obviously a, a program about um, AIDS, it's also a program about the way gay men and uh, straight women relate to issues of care. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk a bit more about Jill then, because she is quite an interesting character. And it intrigues me uh, that, you know, in a show that, you know, like you say, was originally going to be called Boys and did set out to be a film, uh, to be a series about um, gay men primarily, that Jill is really the character that I think has captured the public imagination the most. You've seen this hashtag, be like Jill. And you know she's not actually rounded out that much as you say you know she gets a bit of work as an actor but not that much you don't really see that much of the process she doesn't you know it's assumed that she's straight but you don't really see anything of her uh, romantic relationships you see a bit of her family but not a lot you know and she performs this caring function where the state doesn't really you know due to a mixture of Tory cuts and homophobia but she does also give some idea of this alternative queer kinship, I think. Annie Ring had a good article at Club de Femme about this um, this week. So I, I don't know if you want to kind of expand any more on, on Jill's function within the show in, in that way and what it says maybe about the show's attitudes to the lack of state provision for, for people with HIV and AIDS at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, feel, I feel like that's if there's a moral message to the, to the show, it's kind of about... Um this idea of chosen family and that queer people do produce like oh there are other models of kinship that queer people live within and were living within at the time 
And I think the way that it does that specifically, and it comes comes to a head at the end of the show, is this contrast between Jill and Richie's mother um, and the idea of who cares for Richie and the idea of judgment and care and expectations for the people you care about and their behaviour, which raises some really, for me, in the last episode, some really, really problematic things to do with the way that um, Russell T Davies depicts the idea of blame within the show. It comes up earlier in the show with Richie himself sort of thinking about and talking about his behaviour after he assumed or thought he'd contracted HIV. And, and as we were saying before about this idea of representation not being endorsement, I mean, I think it's fair to depict that because there is obviously a huge range of responses that people were going through at the time regarding their own behaviour. And people did blame themselves. But I think in the last episode, and this is what made me sort of angry about it, is that Davis seems to double down on the idea of blame. Uh, it, it is about apportioning blame. How, who, who, is, who is at fault for this terrible thing happening? And that, for me, is a framework for thinking about HIV. Is really is still really stigmatizing, even if in the end he comes down to say like the, the blame is not is not Richie's. To have played upon Richie's sense that he was blaming himself and this idea of shame, which is, you know, deeply within a lot of queer people anyway. But then to say, actually, this is the big spoiler in the in the last sort of fight between uh, Jill and Richie's mother, that um, actually Richie's mother is to blame for producing for, for producing a loveless environment, therefore seems to suggest that Richie's behaviour you know, that he, him going on and having lots of sex with lots of men was a result of this like loveless environment, you know, that, that and that's exactly the same narrative of gay men being fo- like engaged in this sort of loveless compulsion t- towards fucking because there's no, they don't have any stability in their lives or because, you know, like they're, they're, they're they hate themselves or things like that, which is, you know, one of the sort of really stigmatizing aspects of like people talking about AIDS. And I, I find that really troubling in the way that that happens in that, that last scene. And also that, 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 that is to me is also a point where his writing falls down. Um, this, this, this very uh, sharp, as we were saying, way of depicting quite significant things in little ways. There, there's a moment uh, in that episode where Richie's mother sort of insinuates or makes a hint that her relationship with her father was bad and her, her attitudes towards male sexuality was was presumably a response to her being abused. And then in this argument at the end, Jill sort of snaps back, I don't know what someone did to you to make you so loveless or a line along these lines. And I, oh, it, it sort of stung. It was, it was so obvious. I was like, this is, seems like very expositional dialogue for like the most important speech so of the entire, of the entire. Very program. kind of nineties cliche as well, I think. Yeah. Um, so I, I found that's what kind of what I found uh, quite troubling about it when I was watching it. I, and I read a very interesting piece by um, the play, playwright Brian Mullen, uh, which is really worth what, looking at. It's on his Substack, where he, he he talks about this and also suggests that, that if loveless homes are to blame for gay men's sex lives and them uh, becoming HIV positive, which is already a fucked up thing to suggest, what's Colin's story because Colin clearly comes from a home where he's entirely smothered with you know all the positive love and and support that he could he could want from his mother yeah and Colin's mother is you know much more kind of philosophical about the fact that Colin gets ill and yeah also passes on and and so I found that when I found out that that originally the working title was boys I think that really shifted it for me because I, I feel like actually what you talk what the film is broken into here is these gay men who are sort of almost childlike they they're, they're compelled towards this like supposedly deviant um, and problematic sexual behavior which is like they enjoy having sex with lots of people which isn't is neither deviant not well it is it, deviant from maybe the norms at the time but it's not deviant or problematic to to want to have sex with lots of hot guys if you're a, a gay man or anyone, to be honest, if you're, that's your taste. But then in contra- contrasting that with, uh, and that, but it, but when it comes down to it, they can't care for each other. Rich doesn't care for his lovers by, you know, engaging in safer sex practices, which is seen as somehow 
also tying into this really problematic idea of sort of intentionally transmitting. And on the other hand, and, and, and there's very little in terms of discussions of mutual aid networks between gay men or between queer people in general, lesbians and trans people, trans, trans lesbians and trans men, trans gay men, sorry. And then counter to this, you have this narrative of these sort of three women who are competing in this different like network of care, who are all seemingly heterosexual. And um, to me, seem to it seems to be hinting at this idea of like, who is mother? Which, which again, I think really infantilizes the gay men who are in the program, which, which I didn't feel like, like at all for the first three episodes. And in the last episode, it just feels like the entire thing is just crammed, you know, it's like three hours worth of developments of people's relationships with their families. And it's just crammed into this very, very tight episode in which, you know, in one scene, it feels like uh, Richie's mother is sort of performing every potential negative response to learning that your child is HIV positive and has AIDS in about six minutes inside this hospital room, you know, it's, it was very difficult to watch because because it really felt, yeah, it really felt like there was some tick box ticking going on. And there's there's quite a strange contrast with the scenes that Roscoe has of reconciliation with his like very religious father who's come back from Nigeria, um, yeah. and there's an interesting review in uh, RS Twenty One Revolutionary Socialism Twenty One, which sort of suggests that those scenes. They don't really satisfactorily wrap up that narrative and you know Roscoe gets a couple of quite strange plot lines mainly the one with uh, with Stephen Fry playing this mm. kind of closeted gay Tory MP or possibly a Lord I can't remember um, but quite an odd storyline really that just reaches this kind of conclusion where Roscoe has a one-night stand with Fry's character who you know lives in a very nice London flat uh, overlooking the Houses of Parliament. And uh, this relationship is a kind of sugar daddy relationship, really. Um, and it climaxes with them going to uh, an event at Parliament that clashes with a, a protest about drug companies profiting from like withholding or offering treatment. Mm. And the MP says sort of things to Roscoe that are like racist and homophobic and Roscoe says that he's pissed in Margaret Thatcher's tea which is one of the two main engagements with the Tories yeah. uh, in in the series um, and then leaves and goes goes to the protest and you know everyone is very pleased to see him um, so I don't know what you thought about those uh, those plot lines and the handling of like Roscoe's character more more generally well, again, the, the, the sort of wrapping things up with his father seemed, again, to me, slightly like it was a box-ticking exercise for Davies to say, um, I acknowledge the sort of wider wider AIDS crisis at the time and what was happening uh, in, in Africa. And it's, a, it's a, again, like a one-line mention. To, to, to It feels like to say, like, you know, I know I'm not going to cover this, but I... I'm aware of it or something, which maybe is just just sort of seeing off criticism before it arrives. But um, yeah, it doesn't really f it didn't feel particularly believable within or or meaningful, in fact, within the the, the story itself. Um, yeah. The the, the storyline with Fry, I thought was quite interesting. I think they don't, they don't have a one night stand. It starts with Roscoe having a one night stand with somebody who's presumably another sugar baby who's living in uh, Stephen Fry's flat. Oh, that's um, yeah, and then they they have a sort of short term thing. There, I don't think that was quite interesting. And there are a couple of moments within the entire plot actually where they discuss um, the relationship between out gay men and closeted gay men. Because uh, one of which is Stephen Fry, and the other is Colin having this, having sex in the in the sort of. Uh, house that he's a lodger in i suppose yeah with the son of the the landlady it's really important that those stories were included about the fact that the it was it was much wider than a sort of gay white male community uh, or 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 an out gay community in central london at the time um and to draw upon the fact that like being openly gay was not like a majority subject position for 
gay men at the time, like that most most gay men were probably closeted in the 80s or most men who had sex with men were closeted in the 80s. Um, and and that some of them had made that decision, like Fry specifically, in order to maintain power. And um, at one point, like Stephen Fry is there with his two friends having dinner and they've all bought along their sugar babies, I guess. Which I thought, I thought, yeah, was a, was a something interesting that he for him to to reference that, but again, I, I just that in some way it does make it seem strange that there's not more focus then on uh, the difference in the role of the queer community at the time and mutual aid and mutual care and these networks that were set up. That what is the difference really in the end between between Richie and the son of the landlady? Because in the end, you know they. They, they end up in a, an equivalent position of these homophobic mothers, which is fo- again focused on this like lack or, or the problems in this female care, which seems to me like a, a strange narrative to focus on. Yeah, I mean, Richie does sort of emerge as the lead character, really, and he's, he's really well played, I think, by, by Ollie Alexander. You know, one of the sort of weird moments that feels a bit more throwaway, and it's in episode four, uh, is where Section 28 is introduced and Ash, who is sort of Richie's romantic interest, there's a, a quite affecting scene where they meet each other in the first episode and they look like they're getting on really well and then Richie just says something racist to Ash because, you mm-hmm. know, it's a British Asian. And, you know, they have to... Their togetherness ends at that moment, but obviously they, you know, form a much more long-term kind of romantic interest in each other that's never really only really kind of properly comes to the surface in the last episode and I think again probably would have been more developed had Davis been able to make eight episodes rather than five Um, but Ash talks about working in a school when section 28 is introduced and there's I think a very um, very well done vignette where Ash is recounting this story of being told, look, you need to go through every single book in this library, the school library, and remove anything that refers to homosexuality um, or any sort of, you know, queerness. Um, And Ash delivers this big speech to the guy at the school saying, look, you know, I didn't have to take out Jane Austen or Shakespeare or whatever because we're not there. I didn't have to take any of the history books out because we're not in them, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone around the table is really enraptured by this speech. And then Richie says, what did you actually say to him? And, you know, deflates Ash and just cuts back to Ash saying, oh, there's like one book that you might want to look at. But then what happens, of course, is that one of the characters says to Richie about the Tories, you voted for them. So you get this sense of Richie like voting Tory. This would have been the 1987 election, I guess it's referring to possibly 83 as well, but the 87 one would be the one that was in the background, um, which of course was fought uh, with this intensely nasty homophobic campaign that's something of a build-up from the 1983 Bermondsey by-election at this sort of national level. But, you know, if you look at like Tory campaign material from the time, there's lots of stuff trying to link the Labour Party and particularly the Greater London Council to this creeping homosexuality that's going to kind of like take your children. Indeed, there's quite a moving moment where Colin, who's been sacked by the tailor he works for um, because they think he might have AIDS, he goes and works in a photocopiers and he's photocopying, in 1986, he's photocopying leaflets saying, save the Greater London Council, uh, when he has this kind of epileptic fit that leads to him being diagnosed with, with the virus. But, you know, Richie is revealed to be this Tory voter and he probably is just that a Tory voter you know he's not like a Tory activist he's not a committed Thatcherite necessarily but you know to quote the famous Patrick Keeler film London you know he just thinks it's in his interest to vote Tory economically if not personally and that's the thing that wins out for him but that's not really taken anywhere Um, but I wanted to maybe ask you what you made of the show at that point revealing that we've been sort of asked to sympathize with like a Tory voting character uh, and how you felt about that. Um, why do you, are you suggesting that it's a it's a little cunning trick of like making you <laughs> like this person or revealing he's a Tory? Uh, yeah I mean I, I had mixed feelings about it really but, but, uh, but, but for exactly I, that reason you know. Yeah but you could just as like just as easily I suppose say like he's um he is like personally selfish throughout you know, like he's he's quite an interesting character because he's yeah, like you say, an anti-hero. He's like interesting and charming, 
and you you know kind of want to party with him but at the same time like he's he's kind of a well the phrase that we use in uh, bad gays he has evil twink energy which which is yeah the way the way that's depicted as as this sort of um like powerful fun loving energy which in the end is like kind of uh, selfish and uh, entirely interested in his own self interest but but then so so within within that i mean there's nothing more evil twink energy than being a tory voter no no but uh, i mean that quite seriously like you, you can if 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 someone was in that situation and wasn't a tory voter they probably lack the evil twink energy it's something about this callousness or something but it, again then in the final episode when he's sort of ruining his behavior that for me is when I, I, I sort of lost it a bit with this that he's he's regretting the, the fact that he, that he was having sex with men that sex again becomes the problem but like that the, the problem with HIV is not sex it's an it's it's, an, it's, it's an illness it's just a virus and the the, the loading again of uh, of the the weight of I guess what seems to be depicted as a moral responsibility for the AIDS crisis is again pushed on to like the fact that gay men have sex with each other, which which I found like really troubling to watch. Um, perhaps that's what that's how Russell T Davies feels about it, but but to me it seems like it's continuing the cycle of stigmatization that was started by people like the editor of The Sun in the 80s. Yeah, and I mean, the wider politics here are quite interesting because it's often sort of dealt with by illusion where it's dealt with at all. There's a really interesting moment in the third episode where Colin is dying and he's basically put into a sort of form of like medical solitary confinement and his family and friends are kind of struggling to get him out of there. He really is treated appallingly. And at one point he's discussing with uh, an official... Um, and they get on to the subject of AIDS, Colin's mother, and the official uses the word cesspit, which is a reference to James Anderton, who was the yeah. head of the Manchester police in the 1980s, had the sort of tacit, if not official, backing of the Thatcher government. It was quite an important role to be occupying at that time. Um, several of the Manchester bands in the 80s reference Anderton, uh, mm. the four uh, reference him in Hit the North, the Happy Mondays in God's Cop, uh, and a band called The Passage did several songs about him, including one called Anderson's Hall. But you know, Anderson it's, talked about people with Sir AIDS. James Anderton as well. Yes. He was not he was knighted, knighted after this, after saying that gay men were in a cesspit of their own making. Yeah, gay men and sex workers, I think he talked about. So there's an allusion to to Anderton. Um, you know, you do see them, as I said, protesting against Section 28 and showing the impact of that on schools to some extent. You also see the famous Nicholas Rogue, Don't Die of Ignorance advert. Um, but what you don't see is any kind of organised left, whether that's real kind of very politicised gay organising or a wider organised left. And, you know, I mentioned the film Pride earlier, which deals with exactly this. But I thought that was an intriguing absence in in the series. And I don't know if that was something you you noticed too. Yeah, and that's also kind of what seems strange about, about Richie being a Tory or voting Tory. It seems improbable that somebody in, who's even not really politically engaged, who is living within that that um, that social environment at the time, would not be would be anything other than a Labour voter, if if or or further left. No. Yeah, I mean that was my feeling too. Yeah, the, 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 that's maybe added to to complicate his character a bit. But no, and uh, I think the only reference really to also to any sort of queer organisation is in Gloria uh, and um, that I think a painting on his walls, there's stuff about gay lib, which which was at that point uh, of the sort of mid 80s, it sort of died away largely as an organised political movement, but was still obviously very influential, especially on that, his generation of slightly older gay men. Um, but yeah, it was extremely conspicuous in his absence. One One thing maybe worth noting no, noting about that is maybe the um again the similarities between the reference mm -hmm. the, the the campaigning at the time against uh, the so-called loony left uh, especially the great london council and the emphasis that they were putting on minorities uh, especially for example giving um, money to the london lesbian and gay community center the, these were used as um sticks really with which to beat 
the Labour left uh, under Foot and then later uh, in with with Kinnock. And then again, I thought that was interesting whether whether they were absent because it was a little too pertinent to contemporary the contemporary political discussion. And uh, this, you know, that you'll see exactly the same. If you go back to mid eighties, you see people on the Labour right, Roy Hatterley, for example, uh, railing against the fact that uh, I think Brent Council had had appointed a race relations officer for their schools. Uh, and saying that he would abolish it if he could, and you know this is you know the the left the right of the Labour Party engaging in the same thing, just and which is, you know, you'll see very similar arguments being made by people on the right of the Labour Party today about trans rights and uh, the Red Wall, and this is why we lost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I wonder if uh, that just seemed a little too on the nose to include in a contemporary drama. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite possible, and you know I think Davis, you know, is maybe anxious about like you say, being too overt politically, uh, or maybe just doesn't want to. And I mean, the sort of, you know, the the redemption that Richie has for voting Tory is at the end of episode four, where Jill and Roscoe and others are at the protest uh, and the police are beating them up and they're just about to start beating up Jill when Richie jumps on the policeman to, to stop him. So, you know, where there is a kind of political act, it's very, very, very much like within the Strictly personal yeah right and uh, and i mean i mean it's it's um yeah like depicting this milieu in the in the 80s without any reference to the left is you know it's something that obviously pride didn't do but was notable in pride that it's like okay here is actually a, a really a kind of a sympathetic depiction of the left you know encountering the idea that they were loonies quote unquote mm-hmm. that actually you know n- not that history proves people right but um i mean in this case it that, that, that there's there's very little that the the left would have been advocating at that time, which was seen as ridiculous and far fetched and uh, loony, which is not now a standard liberal thing that you'd get behind if you're a liberal, you know, in terms of gay rights or um, or race relations, for example. But then again, it's not that it's an individual act as well. But then my uh, my boyfriend when we were watching it got almost disgusted at that scene because he was like. Is there nobody on the production team who sees that the the only political act that this guy does is like the heroic white savior of the this mixed race woman like jumping in, and that this is a guy who we've already learned votes Tory. He's what would he attack a policeman? It seems unlikely. You know, to, to, there's a discrepancy in the way that politics is 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 depicted. I think definitely uh, Mark Ashton in Pride would jump on a policeman's back to save his friend, and it wouldn't. You know, that would make sense. That it, it doesn't really fit. Yeah, I mean, it did strike me as being kind of strangely incongruous as well. And, you know, you've mentioned the sort of telling of a story in the 1980s with this absence of an organised left, which yeah, in kind of mid-80s London in particular is is quite a significant omission. I mean, I think the, the series does, you know, it puts us in the 1980s uh, as much through its use of music as anything, which I, I did find really really effective you know not just um the kind of things you might expect to hear like the title track by the pet shop boys or uh say small town boy by bronsky b or some of the music by erasure that comes up this kind of like queer 80s like gay male pop music um but also the use of things like joy division and even the teardrop explodes these sort of like less queer new wave bands um and then some of the sort of cheesier things like Nora Brannigan, perhaps, and, you know, like Kate Bush and Wham also make an appearance. And mm. I think I think the show's use of music is is really, really effective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we were saying, like, the, the one thing that's not really in question is that, that Russell T. Davies really knows how to make a sort of popularised, engaging TV show. And, yeah, the, the, the use of music is, is really effective. And I think also... Uh, fashion and clothing and the sort of styling of it is also really is really good mm-hmm. um again because it's not entirely obvious it could it could have become been quite obvious but there's uh some of the depictions of like the pink palace the place they live in and stuff mm-hmm. i think oh yeah it's quite it's quite interesting and also colin's character sort of not being part of that milieu and the fact that there there are still the not there is still a norm at that time which um which uh which was ex- still extremely dismal and grey and English yeah. that they were rebelling against. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you see the sort of 70s holdover, you know, it's yeah. not it's not up to the second in terms of the decor and design and things, which, of course, is yeah, much yeah. more likely how it was for people. So I think that's really, that's really effective. I mean, you've talked about, you know, Davis being 
just very very good at you know the emotional side of um of television um so i want to come on to the very ending of the series now which is a flashback with the um the main characters all together before the pandemic hits and it did it did really affect me i did find it very moving you see richie uh, auditioning for a part and um the other characters of course several of whom have died by by the end of the series uh, all kind of like laughing together and you know it's a very like self-conscious like tug at the heartstrings um and you know i think critics of the show would um would accuse davis of, of you know really quite acute sentimentality there uh, personally i've never been quite sure about how i feel about sentimentality in you know in particular kind of like film and television narratives uh in general you know for example i'm a big charlie chaplin fan and chaplin is you know endlessly accused of uh being overly sentimental by by his detractors but it's never been something that i've you know disliked about his his film so i wondered i wonder how maybe how you felt about that um that very closing sequence i i felt the same way and i have a similar like ambivalent relationship to the to, to the idea of it of something being sentimental, I think it's not an automatic write-off for me. I think that the, the, some of the negativity towards towards it can be, let's say, the assumption that it's an easy easy way to produce an effective emotional response. And I think, given especially the first three episodes, I didn't really feel that because I I feel like he had the, the characters had done the work in terms of um, creating these like believable and engageable engaging relationships that I really. I was invested in all the characters, so yeah, I think like it would it it was it was an ending that would perhaps that would make sense, and I think was perhaps even valuable perhaps for 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 viewers who uh, had uh, lived through it and experienced a lot of it to to see it narrativized in that way. For me, the problem would just be that it came after some of those more problematic depictions of you know the ideas of blame and shame around the virus, which I, I, I that troubled me. One thing I, I thought when I was watching it and, and 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 then reading some of the criticism online, especially on Twitter afterwards, was uh, sort of comparing it to the accusations of um, against uh, Call Me By Your Name about that being uh, escapist. I think they're actually it's quite an interesting comparison to make because they're obviously extremely different, extremely different productions, one of which is like written by... Uh, a gay man and features entirely a, a queer cast or larger queer cast, as opposed to Call Me By Your Name, which is uh, a very straight production. But I, I again goes back to this point we raised at the start of the show in terms of um, looking at what the uh, the writers are trying to produce, and I think both suffer unfairly because they're being judged for in this case for being sentimental and in coming by your name's case of being escapist when they clearly are intended to be that's part of the the affect and or the the, the the intention of the production though no? um and coming by your name was criticized uh, a lot for not depicting the hiv epidemic at all which seems to me uh, a really unfair sort of thing because it's the, the the milieu that it's depicting and stuff it seems really beside the point but with both, like I, I kind of wonder whether it's like interesting as well to look at them within, within a sort of a trope of queer writing anyway that that does engage with ideas of escapism and uh, sentimentality. Yeah. So 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 in in the case of um, it's a sin. Like I, it, it makes sense for me to tie it together. Of of there there was a loss. There was a loss of uh, a future for these people. Uh, that it was that they were they were in the this great time prime of their life uh, that was and and that what what happened you know was a tragedy for so many people yeah that that something could that could have been continued and been so beautiful and these friendships were were unnecessarily and tragically cut short and I think that's probably an important thing to get across in yeah. in talking about the effect of the uh, the AIDS crisis on the queer community. Yeah, and I think it does awesome. it does capture that very effectively. And again, with that real kind of economy that I talked about earlier and that sort of emotional skill that, that Davis obviously has. Um, so that sort of concludes everything I wanted to say about the specifics of the, the series. Um, so I think I'd just like to close by talking a bit about sort of cultural nostalgia for the 1980s and particularly for the height of the AIDS 
pandemic. Um, I mean, I, you know, I grew up actually with intense nostalgia for the 1980s, growing up in the 90s, and for the music, for the cultural sort of clothing, sort of fashion, for even sort of like 80s video games and things. But also, you know, with, with a very, very strong interest in, in the height of the AIDS pandemic. And, you know, obviously, there's a couple of other things that we've mentioned through the course of this show uh, in the Sweet 212 I did with James Butler and Sarah Shulman that we've also mentioned, you know, a film like uh, Robin Campillo's 120 Beats Per Minute that came out in 2017 that, you know, obviously engaged with ACT UP in France, I mean, admittedly in the early 90s, but very much with the, the height of the AIDS crisis. So, you know, I just maybe wanted to just close by asking you, like, why you think this is happening now and what role it's a sin has within that yeah it's a really interesting question because it's like definitely a phenomenon that i i'm very aware of for notice myself i didn't i don't think i really had that same nostalgia in the well i guess because i'm, a, I'm a, a a little younger in in the not sort of early noughties didn't really feel that uh except to say for the smiths which uh i'm ashamed, I'm ashamed to say there's a good bad gaze episode on the Smiths. yeah i held on to that for too long well, first thing I think it's really important to just to clarify is that, like, um, actually, the the height of the AIDS epidemic uh, in the UK in terms of uh, mortality was in the nineties, not in the eighties. Um, and sometimes I think there's some confusion in the stories told because um, the first diagnoses in the UK happened later than in uh, in the US, and um, something which they do touch. He does touch on actually in. Um, in uh, it's a sin is that is that the discourse around AIDS was a lot more uh, advanced in the US in the um, early 80s and and Colin in fact goes over when he's over in the US to work picks up a lot of materials because there 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 isn't the same access to to information in the UK and secondly obviously that the um, that HIV is is an on, ongoing issue in the UK and and around the world and there are plenty of people still living with it and. I have seen some criticism that it's a sin was seen too much to historicize it as something in the past, which of course is, is very valid if you're talking as well about stigma uh, and the continuing stigma. Um, but in terms of like this nostalgia for the eighties, I wonder, and this is a hypothesizing on my part, which I've been thinking about, I don't know, I'm sure there's, it can be easily criticized. I wonder if there is something within the, queer community around a more easily legible, perhaps more satisfying idea of like a queer political identity that when people look back to the eighties in the way it's presented as a culture, as, as culture today in terms of, I don't know, David Wanarovich's writings and uh, Keith Haring and, um, pose perhaps or you know these these sort of influences whether people see a more easy dichotomy and an easier way to be a queer radical in those examples when today so much representation around queerness is like very clearly comes within a neoliberal frame within ideas of like the wellness industry or like you know RuPaul and you know <laughs> who's a strange hangover right because because it again is somebody who really made their name in the in as a, as a sort of uh, gender folk artist in the in the 80s and now is like you know a fracker um so yeah i wonder whether it's to do with like a, a something attractive about like those clear what seems to be clear dichotomies and at the same time i wonder also you know that the um it's just a, a cyclical appreciation of something that perhaps seemed tacky in the past but now you can you know as some of the crapper stuff is forgotten, you just remember the the, the really good quality music and the um, and the good fashion. I don't know. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite possibly the case. And I think you know, I remember reading an article at least ten years ago um, in the Guardian. I think saying that eighties nostalgia has now gone on longer than the eighties itself. Um, <laughs> and you know, another ten years on, and it doesn't really seem to have gone away. But um, no, I would say like that. I think there's different type, like one of the things is there's, there's a different type of queer nostalgia to a general nostalgia. You know, in the in the noughties, there was like I love the eighties and disco and like eighties disco stuff and you know, 
soft cell revival or something or, or human league revival sorry or something like this which does seem quite different to like a more pointed political queer queer reappraisal maybe of the 80s yeah and that's something that's really come through over the last 10 years i think as the sort of like 2000 sort of electro clash version of the 80s kind of passed yeah the new romantic the new new romantics but at the same time as well like i i I think it's probably important to distinguish that it's a revival or a nostalgia for the 80s uh, that I think is probably driven by people who weren't alive in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. As is, I think, often the case with uh, yeah. with these revivals. Um, you know, there's something of a 90s revival brewing and, you know, that's the point at which I start wagging my finger and just say, you don't know what it was like, you know, going to school and like everyone was talking about ocean colour scene. It was dreadful. We don't want to go I was going to say, get out, your bu- get out your bucket hat, Julia. <laughs> Well, I think we'll uh, we'll end there before we fall down that particular uh, rabbit hole. But um, Hugh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on as always, and I'm sure you'll be back with us at some point as you know one of our one of our regular guests. So, um, listeners, thanks for thanks for listening in today. Um, as ever, I have been your host, Juliet Jakes. Uh, I will be back on Resonance FM in March in our usual monthly slots. Um, and we may well have some more extra content for those of you who subscribe to the show. But um, until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. See you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>